Welcome back to our continuing walk through the book of Psalms, Psalm by Psalm. If you've missed previous videos in this series, you can catch them here on the playlist. Hopefully we're going to get through all 150 of them. Don't know how long that's going to take, but in this episode, we're going to look at Psalm 4. Now, as usual, I'm going to read it in the old NIV, the 1984 edition. This is not the updated NIV that you'd find on Version or Bible Gateway or something like that. The reason I'm reading from the old NIV is because that is what the study Bible that I use and teach from is based on. The goal of this series is not to fully exegete every psalm, but instead it's to give you an understanding of the psalms as Israel's hymn book, as the songs that shaped their view of God, of the world, of themselves. So it's just to familiarize us with the Hebrew hymn book. So in our last psalm, that could be considered a lament psalm that is given as a morning prayer. Now in Psalm 4, we're going to look at what is widely considered an evening prayer and put right beside the last psalm because there are a lot of terms that the two psalms have in common. And we'll point those out along the way. But let's read the psalm first. Here it is in the old NIV. Psalm 4. For the director of music, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, there are a lot of interesting things in this psalm, and, and there are some places where I don't think the old NIV does the best job of bringing out the meaning of the text. And there have been some changes between the NIV version I just read and the NIV version that is out there today. But remember, all Bible translations are interpretations, all of them, 100% of them. And when you come to Hebrew poetry, the range of translation choices you have are even wider because you're not translating straight grammar. You're translating music. You're translating imagery, poetry, wordplay, allusions, assonance, sometimes even rhyme. So it's impossible to bring those from one language into another, but that doesn't mean that we can't know at all what the psalm is saying. However, if you don't know Hebrew or Greek for the Septuagint, then the next best thing you can do is do what we do in these videos, which is compare different translations. So let's take a look at this psalm in more detail. Now, as we've seen in previous videos, in the Hebrew text and in the Septuagint, the superscriptions are included as the first verse. But in English traditions, the superscriptions are added as a title before the psalm begins. And the Septuagint text is clear. So I don't know why the decision was made in English Bibles to drop the superscriptions for each psalm and start the verse at what is actually verse 2 in the Hebrew and in the Septuagint text. If you know why that decision is made, if you're a psalm scholar out there watching this, I would love to know. I just don't know why they do it. Because what happens is those are seen as glosses, those are seen as unimportant. And in some translations, like here in the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the title is dropped altogether. It doesn't even appear. 
but they're worth pointing out because they help group the psalm. So this psalm begins, and that's translated as something like in the Lexham English Bible, for the music director or the King James to the chief musician, or the old JPS just says for the leader. Now, it's interesting to note that when this phrase, Lam Natseach, is translated by the Septuagint, this is back before the time of Jesus, the translators of the Psalms, they translated it with this phrase, Eistotelos. And Eistotelos is to or for the end. Telos means the end or the final. And so that's what you see in the Lexham English Septuagint, for instance, for the end. So possibly, I think Charles Spurgeon noted some earlier scholars who had said that by the time of the Septuagint, these psalms that were originally the notation was to the music director, that had been rendered as this is a psalm for the end. In other words, maybe for the Messianic age or for the eschaton or or as we hope and wait for the end, as we long for the coming David, the new David, the Messiah. I don't know if you can pack all that into this phrase, and I'm not a Septuagint expert. So I just want to point out that the superscription in the Hebrew and the superscription in the Greek are different in how they translate this word. But lemnatseach, and then this next word is in or on or with stringed instruments, ben ginoth. Uh, Nagia is the word for some type of stringed instrument. So it's to be played on a stringed instrument, and it's a mizmor ledavid, so a song to, for, about, or by David. And that's the superscription that was in the last psalm, Psalm 3, that we looked at. And so some scholars, because of where this psalm is placed and because it's also a mizmur le David, they say we should read this in the generally same situation that the last psalm was written for. David fleeing from Absalom. Some have even said this is the next day because the last psalm, as we saw, had him lying down, sleeping, and then getting up in the morning. Some have said, so this psalm follows right on the heels because of similar vocabulary and because of the similar superscription. And this is the next day. This is what David prayed the next night. Now, I don't know if we can go that far, but it's worth considering. So verse 2, which is verse 1 in English Bibles, Bakala'i, in my calling, or when I call, Aneni, answer me, Elohe Tzidki, literally God of my, and this is what the word tzedek, and it can mean righteousness, it can mean justification, it can mean vindication, like in a legal courtroom when you're declared righteous, you are declared in the right, that means you're like, not guilty, or it can mean righteousness, like your holiness, your righteousness, the way you live your life. So the old NIV translated this as my righteous God, answer me, Anani, Elohe Tzidki, and they translated God of my righteousness as just the way you'd say my righteous God. And grammatically, I think that's possible, but given the complaint of this Psalm and what he's going to cry out about in the following verses, I think it's more likely he's saying God of my vindication or the God who is in charge of me being declared in the right, because he's going to talk about a complaint about slander and falsehood in just a minute. Or maybe possibly it could be translated something like the God who I believe is righteous, as opposed to all the other gods, as opposed to the false gods that the other peoples run after. That might possibly be what's going on. But I think God of my righteousness, I think that's a great way to translate it. And then this next verse is interesting because there's a wordplay in it. It says, Batsar hirhavtali. 
So in a tight spot, in a closed space, tali, you, and then this word, Rahav, this is actually where the name Rahab comes from in the story of Jericho, Rahav, and it means to spread or to make wide or to make room. And that's actually a wordplay on Rahab's name in the Jericho account. It's a little bit of sexual innuendo because she is a prostitute and prostitutes were known as being wide open so to speak. And some have even said Rahab's name, kind of the way you would bring that in English is the word broad with all of the slang connotations that that implies. Regardless, that's the verb that's used here. It's in the hip stem, which is kind of causative in this sense. You cause to make wide or you open up, you spread out. So in my distress, in my narrowness, in my being cramped and squeezed, you open up for me. You make things wide for me. And the New Revised Standard kind of halfway picks up on this. It says, you gave me room when I was in distress. A better way to preserve the wordplay would have been if they had said, you gave me room when I was in a squeeze or in a bind or something like that. But that's what's going on in this verse. And so because of that, the psalmist cries out, Chaneni ushma tefilati. Listen to, and tefillah is the word for prayer. So listen to my prayer. So if this is David that's written this psalm, he's saying, you've rescued me before, Lord. So now listen to my prayer. Hear my prayer this time. Drawing on what God's done for him in the past in order to ground his request that he is making in the present. But then it's going to do something weird. In verse 3, it's going to turn and address not God, but it's going to address human listeners. It says, B'nai ish. And that's literally sons of a man. This is translated, I think the old NIB translates it as, O men. The LEB kind of keeps it literal, O sons of man. The Septuagint, huioi anthropon, literally sons of humans. But this phrase, b'neish, is used elsewhere in the Psalms to refer to people of high standing. Like we would say nobility or well-to-do people. And so a number of commentators have said he's not addressing just humans in general. This is, he's turning, he's just cried out to God, and now he's addressing the people who need to hear it. And so he says, how long, Adme, kavodi, my glory, lichima, for disgrace. So how long, my glory for disgrace, you will love, rik, emptiness, vanity, futility even. Just, just nothingness. This isn't the word hevel, which is translated as vanity or futility in Ecclesiastes, but it's a similar word, reek, emptiness, nothing, futility. How long, my glory for disgrace, you will love emptiness. And then still borrowing from this how long, the next phrase, you will seek or you will seek after chazav, lie, falsehood, deception. And this section ends, Selah. So sons of a man or, or nobles or you big shots out there, how long my glory for shame or for insult or for disgrace? Now, is he saying, like the NIV says, how long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? Maybe. If so, then Kavodi, my glory, is talking about his honor. And that's how a lot of the translations read it. Like some English Bible, how long will my honor be a disgrace? The King James, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? Or the old RSV, how long shall my honor suffer shame? 
But in the last psalm, so here's Psalm 3. In the last psalm, this word, kavodi, there it is, right there, exact same word. And it's when he was saying, but you, Yahweh, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. So in the last psalm, it's possible he was calling God his glory, not his own honor, but God is his honor. And if that's true, then here in Psalm 4, Kavodi, my honor, is a circumlocution for God. It's a way of referring to God. So he wouldn't be complaining about how long is my honor, my glory being put to shame, but rather how long will you pursue false gods? And that's exactly how the NIV, the old NIV that I just read says it. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? But the other way of reading it is how long will you slander my honor? Will you disgrace my honor as your king? Love vanity, love nothingness and seek falsehood by following after Absalom. If this is to be grouped with the last Psalm and David's on the run from Absalom because he has usurped the throne and people have followed after Absalom and said, he's the new King and David is the King on the run in disgrace. So if that's the case, then he's not crying out to the people of Israel. How long will you go after false gods? But he's saying, how long will you keep following this nothingness, this vanity, this false Messiah when I'm your true king. So there's leeway in how you can interpret this. And the psalm is vague enough that, honestly, I think it could fit for either situation. And that's part of the beauty of the psalms and part of their genius is, like any good song, they can have application beyond just the initial circumstances that led to the writing of the song. And so, still talking to these B'nai Ish, these sons of a man, the psalmist tells them to do some things. He says, know that he has set apart, uh, Yahweh has set apart or treated as special chasid lo. And chasid, this is the word, this is where chasidim comes from. This is the word for loyal or faithful or godly. So God, Yahweh, Adonai, here's the word right here, the divine name, you need to know that Yahweh has set apart the loyal one to him, the one who is beloved of him, the godly one for himself. And this is a warning to the people who are allied against Israel's Messiah, which is what Psalm 2 was all about. This is picking up on that theme. We can start to see why it was grouped here in the beginning. He's reminding them of what was spelled out explicitly in Psalm 2 about the Lord and his anointed and those who take their stand and conspire against them. And so now we come to verse 5 or verse 4 in your English Bibles. Rigzu va'al te u. Literally, this is rigzu is tremble or be disturbed or shake with anger. So literally, rigzu, it means to tremble. Now, it can mean to tremble in the sense of being disturbed or being afraid, or it can mean to tremble with anger. And that's how the Septuagint translated it. They translated it with orgizeste, to be angry. And so that's what the New Testament, when it cites this verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it's going with the Septuagint reading of be angry, but do not sin. And that's possibly how it can read in Hebrew. Rigzu can mean to tremble with anger, or it can mean tremble and do not sin, like be fearful. L.E.B. says, be disturbed, but do not sin. King James says, stand in awe and sin not. The New Revised, when you are disturbed, do not sin. Peterson in the message, complain if you must, but don't lash out. 
So is the psalmist still talking to these B'nai Ish, these sons of a man, or has he turned and now he's talking to those who are with him? Is he talking to his loyal followers? Commentators, I think, are divided on this issue. The ones who say he's talking to the B'nai Ish, to his enemies, he's telling them, hey, tremble, like fear God because he's hearing my prayer and don't sin. Like, in other words, don't keep doing what you're doing. Don't keep standing against him. Fear God and be holy, be righteous, be a tzaddik. Or he could be saying to his companions, to the ones who are with him, hey, I know you're angry. We're on the run. There's a usurper on the throne. My honor is being reproached. I know you're angry, but don't sin. In your anger, do not sin. Instead, Imru, say, Bilvavechem, in your heart, Al Mishkavchem, on your bed. So, in other words, speak in your heart. Like, take it to the Lord in prayer. When you're on your beds, when you're praying to God at night, as we lay down here, Take it to God in prayer. Speak it into your heart. That's possibly how this could read. Another way that this has been suggested is this in your heart, on your bed or upon your bed. Some have noted that elsewhere in the Psalms, doing something upon your bed is connected with idolatry and worshiping in the high places. So there's passages about, you know, you make your beds under every tree, you make your bed on the high places, and it's an idiom or it's a figure of speech denoting worshiping false gods. And if that's what this psalm is about, which some commentators are reading it that way, rather than being about David's honor being besmirched, then this is saying, hey, Examine your heart when you're on your bed, meaning when you're worshiping false gods, and stop. Like, stop doing that. This word, vodomu, stop, be still. But as we've seen in the video here on whether Elijah heard a still small voice or a roaring, crushing sound, if you missed that video, I'll put a link in the description below. This word, the verb damam, this is where this vodomu comes from. Damam has three meanings. Damam can mean to wail, to cry out, to roar, or damam can mean to be quiet. And so that would fit with, hey, in your anger, don't sin. Rather, in your heart, like do what Mary did. Ponder this in your heart. Take your anger in prayer when you're laying on your bed. Take it straight to God and be quiet allow him to do his thing. So this verse, verse four in the Hebrew, verse five in the English, there are just a lot of translation issues. And that's why there's differences among the translations in how they read it. So like some English, be disturbed, but do not sin. Commune in your heart on your bed and be silent. Selah. King James, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. The JPS Tanakh, so tremble and sin no more. Ponder it on your bed and sigh. So this is taking damam as that wail or lament. The Septuagint down here translates it as, Be angry and do not sin. For what you say in your heart, let your conscience be pained upon your beds. So how you translate it will depend on if you think he's talking to his friends, his companions who are angry and ready to lash out at the usurper that has driven David from his throne, or his friends in general who are seeing how his name, his honor is being dragged through the mud, and they want to say something, they want to stand up, they want to cry out, they want to take matter into their own hands. If he's speaking to those in Israel who have gone after false gods, and he's telling them, hey, stop, 
stop doing this. Re-examine what you're doing on your beds when you're going after these false gods and stop. This is the frustrating beauty of poetry is it can be translated in different ways. So whatever he's telling them to not do, instead, in verse 6, verse 5 in English, he's saying, literally, sacrifice sacrifices of righteousness or rightness or godliness. Tzedek, that's the word that we just saw earlier in the form of tzaddik, same root. So instead of whatever you're doing, whatever you're going to do, whether it's lashing out in anger, whether it's going after falsehood, whatever we just talked about, instead of doing that, offer godly sacrifices, offer right sacrifices. And trust in Yahweh. Trust the Lord. And then in verse 7, verse 6 in English, we come to this phrase, Ravim Omarim. Now, Ravim Omarim has only ever been used elsewhere in the entire book of Psalms in the previous psalm. That's possibly why this song is placed where it is in the Psalter. Ravim Omarim, many are saying. Now, in the last psalm, Ravim Omarim, what they what the many were saying is God's not going to deliver him. That was the many who were arraying themselves against the psalmist in Psalm 3. Now in Psalm 4, Ravim Omarim, many are saying, what they're saying this time is, Mi tov. Who will cause us to see good? Who will show us good? So in the previous psalm, many were saying that God's not going to rescue the psalmist. And in this psalm, many are still saying stuff. But they're saying, who will show us good? Who will lead us into goodness? Who will help us experience good, tov, rightness, health, prosperity, however you want to render it? And so then they're saying, nasa aleinu, bear upon us or hold upon us. Lift up over us the light of your face. This is an idiom. It can mean your glory, your brightness, your favor. So like some English, lift up over us the light of your face, O Yahweh. King James, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Tanakh, bestow your favor on us, O Lord. The Septuagint takes it as a past tense. The light of your face, O Lord, was manifested upon us. New Revised, let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. And in the message, Peterson tries to kind of paraphrase this entire section. Why is everyone hungry for more? More, more, they say. More, more. I have God's more than enough. So the many, they're crying out for God, show us good, shine your face upon us. And the psalmist says, You've put joy in my heart. Me'eth, more than a time of, Deganam, their grain, Vatirasham, and their wine, Ravu, being in abundance or multiplied. So God, you've put joy in my heart more than whenever their grain and their wine vats are full. So these B'nai Ish, these people of note, these sons of a man, all the ones who are crying out, well, who will show us good? Who will give us prosperity? Who will show us abundance? And what the psalmist is saying, that's maybe what they're clamoring for. But he's saying to God, you've put more joy in my heart than any of their most abundant seasons of harvest than any of their riches. We might say today, than a full bank account. So in peace, I'll together, or I'll do both of these things. I will lie down, eshkava, and I will sleep, ishan. Why? Why can he do that? Ki ata Adonai levadad. Because you, Yahweh alone, vabetach, security or with safety, 
Hoshiveni, cause me to dwell. So like some English, in peace I will lie down and sleep at once. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. Or the Tanakh, safe and sound, I lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, keep me secure. The Septuagint translated, in complete peace I will go to bed and fall asleep because you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in hope. So if Psalm 3 was a prayer or a song for the morning, which is traditionally how it's been used, then Psalm 4 is a prayer in the evening. The two are put back to back, one because one describes morning, one describes evening, because there's similar vocabulary. They both talk about the many who are saying, they both are a Psalm of David. They both speak of my glory. There's a lot of connections grammatically between these two Psalms, but the gist of it is in Psalm 4, we have someone crying out to God noting that what should be honored is dishonored, whether that's his own reputation and it being slandered, or whether that's the God of Israel and them running after false gods, crying out to people to change their ways, or whether it's to not use their righteous anger as an excuse to commit sin, but instead to be devoted to God and offer right sacrifices, be godly covenant-keeping Israelites, and let God do what God's going to do. Whichever of those two is going on in the psalm, you have the psalmist singing to those listening to do the same, to approach God in righteous worship. And as a result, you have the psalmist recognizing, coming back to the grounded truth, that regardless of whatever is out there, the joy, the inward peace that God has put in his heart is enough to make him lie down and go to sleep in safety. So this is very much a now I lay me down to sleep type song, even in the midst of trouble. See, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they're like the doorways that we enter into the entire book of Psalms, and they speak of the ideal, the ideal life of Torah, Psalm 1, the ideal Messiah and his reign, Psalm 2. And then as soon as we pass through those gates, we are into the nitty gritty Psalms. We immediately come to Psalms of David that talk about, hey, God, I know how this should be. I know what Torah should provide for people. And I know that people should worship you. And I know that as king, I should be experiencing all of this blessing. But life doesn't look like that. And that's what we see in these two opening psalms that are put right after Psalm 1 and 2 is the gritty, grim reality of life in a fallen world, trying to keep our eyes fixed on the God who is the God of everything, clinging to the promises, clinging to the truth of what should be in the midst of the reality of a fallen world. So if you're reading through the Psalms and you feel like these things are kind of disjointed, it almost seems schizophrenic. Like one is super high praise and happy and joy. And then in the next one, it's like the pit of despair. And then in some, it seems to go from joy to despair or from despair to joy, back to despair, back to joy. All of these movements. Yeah, that's what life is like for most people. And the psalmists don't paint a picture that's not based in reality. This is the beauty of Israel's hymn book. They give us the words to express all of life, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the times of joy and the times of utter despair. So as Christians, the Psalms should form our vocabulary for how we talk to God and how we talk about God and how we talk to each other. This is one of the only Psalms where these others are specifically spoken to. So in our own worship, in our own prayer, in our own singing in churches, 
are we expressing all that the Psalms express? Or do our songs all just paint a picture of joy and happiness? Or I was down, but God made me happy. Or you've got problems, but leave them at the door and come approach the throne in joy and excitement and all of that. I mean, if we're not careful and if our worship isn't guided by theological depth and biblical foundation, then worship and prayer can easily turn into performance. So hopefully this psalm study is at least helping solidify in your minds, because I know it's doing it in my mind, the need for authenticity in our worship, authenticity in our songs, and authenticity in our prayer and how we talk about God to other people. So that's all for Psalm 4. Stay tuned. We'll be back next week. We'll look at Psalm 5. Until then, as always, keep training.